want to call your attention to Hebrews chapter 12. As you're turning there, uh, let me just give a heartfelt thank you uh, for the uh, invitation to come and to share with you all. I'm well aware that uh, many of you who have gathered this morning may not be a part of Second Press, but still I'd be remiss to at least not to say thank you for uh, this great church and all that it's meant to me personally, uh, along with some of the pastors here. I've gotten a chance to know Rocky Anthony. We shot at a couple of ducks a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, and didn't hit anything, but the fellowship was great. And, uh, and then Sandy Wilson, he has been a dear, dear brother to me and friend. Uh, when, we, when we first moved here about uh, six years ago, in May of 2003, to start the church, we started about 26 people. I like to tell people we started about the size of about two Mormon families. And uh, um, as we... As we moved here, uh, I called Sandy out of the blue. He didn't know me from Adam, and uh, I got an audience with him, and it spoke dearly to me about his humility, and we get together from time to time, and inevitably, when we'll sit down, we'll talk shop and talk some doctrine, and uh, he knows my background, at least from my formal education, both undergrad and graduate school, is a... Uh, uh, heavily dispensational, so he wants to label me as this unregenerate dispensationalist. And, um, you know, I, to which I remind him, Sandy, in my eschatology, I have some dispensational leanings, but you need to know that in my soteriology, I, I'm heavily reformed. I say, I, I'd like to call myself a Calvinist with boxers, not with briefs. <laughs> Uh, with boxers. I keep it loose. Uh, anyways, I can say that in all men's audience, but um, uh, that surprises him somewhat. But nonetheless, I'm grateful to God for uh, his friendship, his partnership in the ministry, and all that God is doing through this church and other churches in our city. And I count what we're doing at Fellowship to be a great, great privilege to be able to partner with Second Press and so many other churches that are surrounded here. Uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, again, Hebrews chapter 12, if you've been around church for a while, you've, you've no less heard this passage. I just want to lift up three verses to you uh, this, um, th this morning. Uh, by the way, uh, they didn't tell me what time do I need to be done. 7.30. Wonderful. Reminds me of the time I was preaching at a church in uh, Charlotte. And, uh, you know, I asked that pa the pastor. It was a uh, white Presbyterian church. I said, because in my tradition, the man of God gets to preach as long as he likes. Uh, but uh, this uh, church told me, uh, um, you know, oh, Brian, dear brother, time doesn't mean anything here. We're spirit-filled, spirit-led. You take as long as you like, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Just wanted to make sure we are on the same page. 7.30, I will be done. I uh, want to lift up three verses to you right out of Hebrews chapter 12. You'll hear me this morning, uh, as some of you may or may not know, uh, make mention of the fact that we don't know who the writer of the, Hebrew, uh, of the book of Hebrews is. I'll just refer to him, and I'm even guessing it to him. Could be a, a woman. I'll, I'll refer to the writer as the writer. Some conjecture it was Paul. I don't think the style fits typical Pauline writing, uh, by the way. Paul always be begins with doctrine and always ends with duty. That's typical Pauline literary style. He always begins with what you should know and always concludes with here's what you should do with the information you just gleaned. That's not the style of Hebrews, although whoever wrote it is heavily familiar and heavily steeped in Jewish culture. That is a given. So for, for that reason, some people say it could be Paul, but we don't know. First three verses of Hebrews chapter 12, look at them with me, reading out of the ESV. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If I had to put a tag on this text, I'd want to talk for a little while from the subject travel light. Travel light. Let's say another word of prayer. Father, would you bless our time together this morning? Thank you for these men. Thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing in their lives. I do pray, Lord God, that you would feed us manna from heaven this morning. Give us what we need as we are going to, in a few moments, deploy from this room and go to our various posts in the marketplace that we might shine as lights and walk in such a way, Lord God, that those who are in the world who the Bible calls darkness may see our light and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord God, I do pray, as the old preachers used to pray, that you would hide me behind the cross, that I would preach Christ, him crucified, and that you would, in the process, Lord God, nourish our souls for our edification and ultimately for your glory. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. On November 25th, 1980, maybe you remember it, I, I didn't actually watch it, I, I remember listening to it on the radio with my father, but on November 25th, 1980, Sugar Ray Leonard stepped into the ring against his old nemesis, Roberto Duran. It, it was a classic fight. In fact, it was the second time these two men had fought in the previous five months uh, the first fight that had taken place five months prior to that in 1980, uh, it was a shocker. Everybody just knew that Sugar Ray Leonard would make quick work of Roberto Duran, but in the pre-fight stuff, it got really nasty, really personal, right before that first fight, and Sugar Ray Leonard uh, walked into the ring in that first fight, and he decided, I I'm not going to do any dancing, I'm not going to use my quickness, I'm going to get into a hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat with this guy, I I'm going to get into a street fight with him, it's going to be mano y mano, it's going to be a brawl, and that play right into Roberto Duran's hands. And this man that they called Fists of Stone in that first fight shocked the world by knocking out or defeating Sugar Ray Leonard. Now five months later, here they are, November 25th, 1980, and Sugar Ray Leonard says, change of game plan. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to use my quickness. I'm going to use my speed. And if you watch the fight, if you heard it on radio, you know what happened. For eight rounds, Sugar Ray Leonard humiliated Roberto Duran. He danced around him one time. He wound up with his right hand like he was going to hit him and humiliated him by slapping him across the face with his left hand. Absolutely humiliated him for eight rounds. And then it happened. With 16 seconds left to go, in the eighth round, Roberto Duran did the unthinkable. He turned and looked at the referee and uttered these two words, no mas. No mas. That's Spanish for no more. I, I, I quit. I'm done. To the shock and awe of the world, this man, who is known as Fists of Stone, simply quit. Afterwards, they shoved the microphone into Sugar Ray Leonard's face, and he said these words. To make a man quit, to make a Roberto Duran quit, was better than knocking him out. No mas. No mas. 
I'm done. Those words, no mas, you can almost hear them reverberating from the pages of the book of Hebrews. When the writer sits down, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. They're Jewish by birth, formerly Jewish by religious practice, but now they've made the choice recently to follow Christ. They are Jewish sociologically, but Christian spiritually. And now he's writing to a group of people, listen now, who are on the verge of saying no mas. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us why they want to quit following Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that since following Jesus Christ, some of these people had had their property confiscated. Others of them were beaten to within an inch of their life. Others of them were (coughs) carted off to jail. And, And now here you have, listen now, some Jewish Christians who are saying, you know what, I'm doing the math here. Since following Jesus, my life on many levels has not gotten better. Since following Jesus, these Jewish Christians are saying, on many levels, my life has gotten worse. And because of that, they're saying, I I I should quit this Jesus thing while I'm behind. I should stop following Jesus. Because the old way did not bring me nearly the amount of headaches that I'm now experiencing since following Jesus. If If I can just stop right here, maybe that's some of you this morning. Maybe some of you, if if you were to really tell the truth within the depths of your spirit, maybe you could say, just like the Hebrew Christians, you know, since following Jesus, my life on some levels has not gotten better. If we're going to really tell the truth, some of you could say, since following Jesus, I've gotten pink slips. Since following Jesus, my, 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 my stock market portfolio has crashed. Since following Jesus, I've gotten divorced. Since following Jesus, my kids have gone off the deep end. Since following Jesus, my car has broken. Since following Jesus. The truth of the matter is, friends, as my grandfather used to say, we don't live in heaven and board down here. And some of you may be saying right now, I'm doing the math here. And following Jesus is not giving me all that I thought it would. Maybe like the Hebrew Christians, some of you are saying within the depths of your spirit, no mas. No mas. As you read through the book of Hebrews, there's a word that keeps popping up. It's the word endurance. Over and over and over again, the writer of Hebrews keeps using this word. In fact, we'll see it in our passage this morning. He, he, he keeps telling them, endure. It's the idea, don't quit up. It, it, it's the idea of, of, of bearing patiently under something. He's telling them, endure, stick to it. He's writing desperately because he understands the setting. He knows that these Jewish Christians are are contemplating, throwing in the towel and going back into the old way. And so in a masterful argument, the writer of Hebrews sits down and he wants to lift up the supremacy of Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews can be summed up in five words. Jesus Christ is better than. 
I wish I had time to deal with it in, 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 in extensive terms this morning, but I don't. But, but here in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the old covenant. Over and over again, he's lifting up and extolling the supremacy of Jesus Christ, hopefully with the punchline being that they will hang in there and won't quit and endure. So that much of the book of Hebrews, listen now, is what we would call exhortation. But there are parts of the book of Hebrews in which he gets very frank, very stern. It's in the form of what we would call, listen now, five warning passages. One of them, for example, it's the fourth one. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. Hebrews 10.39, if you're a good Calvinist, you know that is the poster board for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He says, um, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Translation, and this will make some of us uncomfortable, he's saying, if you quit on Jesus now, this reveals that you were never genuinely saved. He's not preaching work salvation. You cannot lose that in which you never earned in the first place. But he is helping us to see that a major point to the doctrine of salvation is those who are genuinely in Christ endure to the end. Then in chapter 11, one verse later, it's that classic hall of faith chapter, but please see it in its appropriate context he calls on people like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and, and, and so on and so forth. Not just to say, look at them, but he calls on these great men and women of faith in such a way to say, look at them. They endured. They went through incredible stuff like Red Seas and infertility and floods, and yet they endured to the end. Look at them. Let them inspire you to hang in there. But then he says... Towards the close of chapter 11, because he doesn't want them to leave thinking that following Jesus means I get everything I pray for, he says there were some people who were incredibly godly who did not receive what they were believing God for in this life. Will you look at verse 36 of chapter 11 with me? He writes, others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, listen, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, then the punchline, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We love the first half of chapter 11. We love hearing about uh, how Moses was in front of the Red Sea, and we love hearing about Abraham and, and Sarah. But he says, listen, there's another group of people. The Red Seas didn't open for them. There's another group of people. They weren't delivered in the fiery furnace. 
And yet he says their faith was victorious even though they did not receive in their lifetime what was promised because something better was promised for us. So at this moment, I'm reminded of my great-great-grandfather, Peter. Peter was a slave. He worked the plantations in Asheville, North Carolina. According to family tradition, Peter was a, a godly man who loved Jesus. According to family tradition, Peter was a praying man who used to rock back and forth and pray for his family for generations, it said. I have to believe in my heart of hearts that one of Peter's prayers was that he would, he would experience in his lifetime the full rights and privileges of humanity, that he would be emancipated, that he would experience freedom, that he could stay in any hotel he wanted to, vote however he wanted to, but Peter died and went to his grave, never experiencing in his lifetime what he was praying for. Just the other week, I'm at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Atlanta, and as I walk into this beautiful hotel, I'm struck with the thought, my great-great-grandfather could never have stayed there. And I have a vision of Peter peering over the balcony of heaven with tears streaming down his face, looking at his great-great-grandson walking into this hotel, pastoring a body of primarily white people in Memphis, Tennessee. I am the fulfillment of my great-great-grandfather's prayers. And this is humbling. And I think the application is this. Whenever God blesses you in this life, whatever form that blessing takes place, don't get so arrogant. It could be that you are experiencing the blessings that your great-great-grandparents prayed for and never experienced in their lifetime. But Hebrews 11 also strikes a fatal blow into prosperity theology. Hear it. Prosperity theology says, believe more, pray more, have enough faith, and you will get in this lifetime, if you just simply do right, pray right, live right, you will experience, if you have no sin, what you're believing God for. Hebrews 11 says, uh-uh. He says, there's a group of people whom the world was not worthy, who did not experience what they were believing God for. Now, with that bit of context, we're ready to zoom in to our passage this morning. In our passage... The central figure, as it is in all of Scripture, is Jesus Christ. In our passage, he is now going to allow his argument to reach its apex. He's writing to this group of believers, and he's begging them, don't throw in the towel. I know the economy is tough. I know things at home are difficult. I know the problems and the pressures and the headaches that awake you in about 35 minutes. I, I, I know all of that. But he says, I want to redirect your attention to Jesus. He says three things to us this morning. I, I want to lift them up. There are three essentials that when we find ourselves hemmed in by life, 
when we find ourselves wondering, man, I was planning on retiring in about 18 months, but now with the economy, I don't know how that's going to happen, and I'm questioning some things at the very epitome of who I am in my soul. What do I do here? He says three things. First one is found in verse 2, rather at the end of verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here it is. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I don't know if you underline in your Bible, you may want to underline the phrase, let us run. Here, he brings an interesting twist. Because he's not just begging them to hang in there. He says, run. The Greek word for run, you all know this. You sit under one of the best Bible teachers in our country, Sandy Wilson. You all know that the New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek word for run is the Greek word treko. And the idea of treko is far much more than the physical repetitious movement of one's feet. It really speaks to the the essence, to the heart of the runner. The, The idea of run literally means to give your all. Paul would use this same word, treko, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, when he would say, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run, there it is again, in such a way that you may win. He's begging them, don't just hang in there. Don't just become a cultural Christian. Don't just settle for Sunday mornings and Thursday mornings and a few things in between. No. Run. First thing he's begging us for is that we would run with passion. That we would run with passion. I'm a a Rocky Balboa fan. I, I depart after Rocky Four. Rockies Five and Six are a bit ridiculous to me, um, especially this last one. Uh, it's so obvious he's on HGH. Uh, but uh, anyways, it's it's a, it's a little bit ridiculous, far fetched. I, I enjoy the first four. Um, Rocky Two. I'm guessing some of you in this room have have probably seen it. You know, Rocky Two, right on the hills of Rocky One. At the end of uh, Rocky One, uh, Rocky uh, defies the world by taking Apollo Creed, the distance, and uh, this little bum from the streets of Philadelphia is immediately uh, cast into the public spotlight, and that's how Rocky Two opens up. And he's doing commercial shoots and a bit of modeling and trying his hand of acting, and then all of a sudden the bottom falls out. He loses some endorsements, and at the same time, worst of all, his beloved wife, Adrian, who's pregnant with their son, in the middle of labor, slips into a coma. And here's a guy who had just signed on for a rematch, a, a second shot at glory to, to, to do battle with his nemesis, Apollo Creed, and, and yet his wife is in a coma, and he's just going through the motions. He's training because he's supposed to be training, and Mick, his trainer, is so frustrated with him, but his heart's not really in it, but duty calls him, and he, so, he feels like he's got to kind of stoically go through this. And then all of a sudden, through a miraculous set of circumstances, Adrian comes to, she's out of a coma, and, and if you see it you remember the scene it's kind of the climax of the movie here's Rocky and Mickey and Adrian Adrian's holding their 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 new son and in the midst of all this Adrian says there's one thing I want you to do 
And he leans in, he says, what? And she says, when? And the music starts, when? And the hair on the back of your neck stands up and she says, when? And Mickey says, what are we waiting for? And he goes into training, and, and now it's a totally different thing. Now you don't see a Rocky who's going through the motions. You see a man who has passion. It's what the Greeks called pathos. That's the idea here. Don't just go through the motions. Run. Run. If I can tell you something, friends... The greatest threat to we Southern Christians who live in the buckle of the Bible Belt is a cultural, heartless, cold, regimented Christianity. Author of Hebrews says, I want you to endure, but more than that, I want you to run, have a sense of passion. Secondly, we are to not only run after Jesus with a sense of passion, but we're to run after him with a sense of obsession. He says, let us run, into verse 1, with endurance, the race that is set before us. And here it is, verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Underline the word looking. Here, obviously, the author is using the metaphor of, of the race to depict his principles, his, his points, he says, quite frankly, that the Greek runner, by way of implication, whenever he would run, he would make sure that his focus, his gaze, was directed in one place. In fact, the idea of the word looking has both a negative and a positive dimension. Uh, one dimension is negative. The idea of looking is that I must look away from other things. Anyone who runs, who sprints especially, they understand they cannot run their fastest time while their head is pointed to their, to their competition. They cannot run their fastest time while they're looking up into the stands to, to see who's looking at them. No, they must look away. They cannot run with a sense of distraction. Fellow Christ followers, are you distracted by the world? Are you distracted by possessions? Are you distracted by people? Are you distracted by the things, the fleeting things of this world? When he says looking, it is the idea of looking away. But not only is there a negative aspect looking away, but there is a positive aspect. The Greek runner, when he would run, he would be fixed and focused on the finish line. He had one goal in mind, and that goal had his attention, had his gaze, and it fixed everything about his attention forward. Our gaze is not on a piece of tape, verse 2 tells us. Our gaze is to be set on Jesus. For he says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why are we to look to him? The writer of Hebrews says, because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. How did he become the founder and perfecter of our faith? Because he went to the cross. Holman Hunt, in his classic, classic painting, The Shadow of Death, 
He depicts a Jesus in his humanity working in his carpentry shop. It is the end of a day. Jesus has his shirt off. He's tired and exhausted. And looming over the carpentry shop is a shadow in the shape of a cross that hovers over Jesus. Holman Hunt in his artistic mastery is depicting for us a principle that is rooted in the scriptures that the cross was central to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet the author of Hebrews wants to remind us that the cross was the emblem, as the songwriter said, of suffering and shame. The Romans viewed the cross as a shameful way to die. In fact, Cicero, Rome's great orator, said that uh, the word cross should even be struck from the Romans' vocabulary. The Romans who used the cross as an instrument of execution so viewed it as being so shameful that they refused to allow any citizen of Rome to die the death of crucifixion. That privilege was only for criminals who were not citizens of Rome. The Jews, like the Romans, viewed the cross as a shameful, scandalous way to die. In fact, they rooted it in their findings in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, which says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. The Jews would say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. To the Jewish mind, it was unthinkable that the Messiah would die, first of all, at the hands of their oppressor, and then would die the shameful death of crucifixion. Part of the reason why the cross was seen as so shameful was the way, the manner, the horror in which a person was brutalized by the cross In fact, friends, you need to understand that our English word excruciating comes from the Latin excruciatus, ex out of cruciatus, cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of suffering and pain, they went to the cross. You've seen the passion, you understand. More times than not, when a victim would go through the process of crucifixion, first they would be tied to a pole. They would be beaten with what's called a cat of nine tails. This cat of nine tails had pieces of bone and metal in it. And as this whip would beat into your flesh, it would tear out huge hunks of flesh. This in and of itself was sufficient enough to kill an individual. Usually during this process, the individual would be so traumatized by this cat of nine tails that he would begin to lose all control over his bodily faculties. It wasn't uncommon to see a man defecate on himself to urinate on himself. After that, a cross was placed on him if he still lived. He was nailed, sometimes tied. If he was nailed, more times than not, in his wrists, not in his hands. He was hoisted on that cross by two centurions, dropped into a post. Upon being dropped into a post, that person, all of his joints would become dislocated. His lungs would fill up with mucus and he'd have to push up to get air. The average length of time it took a person to die the horrible death of crucifixion was not two or three minutes, not two or three hours, but two or three days. It wasn't uncommon to see the birds of the air circling around crucified victims who, while they were still living, these birds, sometimes recognizing that they could not get out of their predicament, would land on them and would begin to tear the flesh off of their body. 
Archaeologists have found actually the victims of crucifixion and they said in many cases it wasn't uncommon to see their shins shattered. Their shins would be shattered because they would have to push up to get air and when the Romans wanted to hurry up and finish you off in a merciful way, they would take their clubs and break your leg, shatter your shins so you could no longer push up to get air. All of this was done publicly. People would come by and spit at you and jeer at you cross was the emblem of suffering and shame. And that's why Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 19, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Here the early Christian community did the unthinkable, What the world looked at as scandalous and shameful, the early Christian community embraced. Tertullian, the early church father, would say it this way, writing in the late 2nd to early 3rd century, he would say this, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps on couch, when on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. The world said, shameful. The Christian community redeemed and embraced because the world saw the cross as an end unto itself, the Christian community saw the cross as a means to an end. And that is if it wasn't for the sacrificial, substitutionary, penal, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I would spend an eternity in hell. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's follower never becomes so cute and sophisticated in your theology. Never become so cute and sophisticated and mature in your faith that you get over the bloody, scandalous, shameful death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died in our place for our sins. Christ says, I know nothing else. says, look to him who despised the shame. Look to him. Verse 3, he says, consider him. The Greek word for consider is from that Greek word we get the English word analyze from. He says, analyze him. Play it over and over and over again. The scandal of Easter is that that is the only time we talk about the cross in many of our churches. But he says, play it over, over again. Be obsessed with Jesus. Thirdly and finally, he says, not only run with passion, not only run with obsession, but run with efficiency. Run with efficiency. Hebrews 12.1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, here it is, 
lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The question on the table as we conclude is, what do we do for a Jesus who gave his very life for us? No, we can never repay him. We are forever in his debt. But how can we say thanks? He says, you want to say thanks? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Again, he's alluding to the Greek runner. The Greek runner would lay aside, the idea there means to strip naked. He he was so passionate about running so hard and so fast that he took inventory and said, anything in my life that will slow me down in the least, I want to discard. Now listen, let me say this. Here he pinpoints our duty. We're to lay aside. We're we're, we're to set aside sin and wait. Pinpoints our duty, but, 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 but hear this. Hear this, the emphasis of this text is not on our duty. The emphasis of this text is on what Christ has done for us. He has gone to the cross, and we're to desire him by running passionately after him, looking after him. Listen, when we put duty before desire, that's legalism. When we think that if we do certain things, if I now lay aside sin, if I now lay aside weight, he then will look at me as being acceptable. That's legalism. That's self-righteousness. Duty never trumps desire. Desire must come first. And that is why you cannot fabricate desire. That is why salvation is a work of the Spirit of God through the act of regeneration who not only makes me alive to Jesus, but imparts on my account not just righteousness, but a new set of what Jonathan Edwards called affections. And you cannot fabricate affections. And be careful. It doesn't mean that I wake up every morning singing a hymn and diving into my word. But it does mean... He has taken out the old operating system and has given me a new hard drive, a new operating system that craves Jesus. And all that I do must flow from a preeminent passion for Jesus. Duty must flow. From desire. But there is a place for duty. Self-righteousness, legalism says, do, 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 don't, don't, don't. And I am accepted. You've got a new generation of Christians, and I deal with them in our church. There's this new postmodern crowd who have swung the pendulum from religiosity to now rebellion, in which they view everything in the junk drawer of grace. And the only hymn my people know is Jesus paid it all. And they cannot even tell you the next part. It's paid. It's covered. And so now, because of the gross misunderstanding of grace among the younger postmodern generation, what we have said is, is that grace is not a stimulus to holiness. It is a stimulus for me to be crude and crass and live any kind of way that I want They must remember Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No! Grace is given to us, not to say it's paid and I can live any kind of way, because even in verse 14 of, of, of Hebrews 12, he says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
There's the religious, there's the rebellious, but there's a third way. It's the way of the redeemed. The way of the redeemed understand that any modicum, any measure of righteousness that I have, even on a good day, even in a good season, is still in the words of Isaiah, reiterated by Paul as filthy rags. That all that I have comes from him and his work on the cross. And yet I now view that, the redeemed say, as a stimulus to holiness And now I must do certain things that flow out of his finished work. He says, lay aside sin and wait. Let me just close with this. Lay aside sin. We get that. He's saying be be vigilant. Be vicious. Do not tolerate any known areas of sin in your life. Make them a matter of spirit-filled confession and repentance. We get that. Here's the problem. He doesn't say, he doesn't just say lay aside sin. He also says, lay aside every weight. It's the only time in the, in, the, in the New Testament the term weight is used. The idea here is anything that slows me down. Listen, sin is black and white. It's right and wrong. We get that. Weight is gray. What might be a weight for me may not be a weight for you. It's kind of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but now not all things are permissible. There are certain things that you can do, maybe, that I can do, and that I can do, and vice versa. Maybe for some of us, a way to secular music. It's not that all secular music is wrong. I should hope not. I love Coltrane. It's not that all of that is wrong. But for some of us, it's a weight. It slows us down. For some of us, maybe it's cable in our homes. It slows us down. For some of us, maybe it's television. It's a weight. It slows us down. For some of us, maybe it's the way that we spend our money on certain things that we enjoy. It's a weight. It slows us down. Listen, I find that most Christians will deal with the issue of sin and will at least contemplate and question it, but most Christians don't even contemplate the issue of weight. What we want to know is, can I do it? And I love what Tom Nelson says. Most Christians would rather have a rule than to think. What's your weight? It's, if you pushed it, it's right, but it's wrong for you. What's your weight? What slows you? For those of us who travel a lot, we understand that because of the tough economical times that we are, there have been some pretty serious, in my mind, at times ridiculous travel restrictions that have been introduced, especially in the airline industry. I watched one lady pay five bucks for a pillow on one airline. We've seen some of that. I was checking into Memphis Airport uh, maybe about a year ago. Um, I was headed off somewhere, and as I'm checking in, I'm, I'm watching a, a pretty heated conversation between a man and a woman behind the counter. He's, he's placed his item on the scale, and the woman responds by saying, Sir, your item is overweight. Uh, you've got too much stuff, and because it's overweight, uh, we're going to have to charge you upwards of 50 bucks. He found that to be ludicrous, and on principle, he says he will not pay it. Uh, It's not that I even have the money. I'm not going to pay 50 bucks. She says, well, sir, you cannot continue on in your journey unless you rectify this situation. Either you pay the fine or you get rid of some of the stuff that's in your suitcase. 
He thought about it for a moment, and we all kind of sat there watching him as he painfully opened up his suitcase and took inventory of his stuff. And you could see the anger, frustration, and pain in his eyes as he's contemplating, do I pay the money or do I get rid of some of my stuff? I watched him open up his suitcase and dump several articles of clothing simply into the trash. I realized that day there is a cost to travel. On one hand, if we bring too much stuff, if we allow the roommates of sin and weight to dwell in our journey, it will slow us down and it will cost us from running as fast as we can after Jesus. But on the other hand, if we would get rid of sin and weight in our life, there is a cost to parting with those things that we love all too well. There is, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a cost to discipleship. The question on the table is, are you willing to pay the appropriate costs to travel light, to get rid of sin and weight, and look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Let's pray. Father, for these men, I thank you for what you're doing in their lives for this study and the influence and impact it is having on our city. I'm indeed eternally grateful. Father, I do pray as we leave from here that we would never get over, in the words of the songwriter, the old rugged cross and how Jesus and the early Christian community took what the world saw as shameful and scandalous and redeemed it as something beautiful and precious and irreplaceable because now we Christians understand that the cross is not an end, but it is a means to an end, a relationship with you through, in the words of Isaiah, the suffering servant of Jesus Christ. Lord, may this vision of Jesus on a cross and more importantly his subsequent resurrection from the grave, may it push and propel us to strive after you to lay aside every, <coughs> every sin and wait. We love you and we bless you today. In Christ's name, amen.